0: Welcome to Five Books for Catholics, where an expert selects and explains five outstanding books in some aspect of Catholic life, doctrine, or culture. Early on, Christians began to develop distinctive works of art for worship, tombs, and other practices. They necessarily drew on the grammar and conventions of the art of the surrounding culture, but also reassessed these in the light of the gospel. Similarly, they grappled with the question of how the invisible God should be represented in art. We continue to grapple with similar questions. What's the purpose of Christian art? What place should it have in our worship, prayer, catechesis, societies and homes? What canons should it follow? The answers that the early Christians gave in their art may still be instructive for us today. To introduce us to the field, Professor Robin M. Jensen will take us through her pick of five books on early Christian art. Robert Jensen is the Patrick O'Brien Professor of Theology at the University of Notre Dame, a Fellow of the Medieval Institute and the Nanovic Institute for European Studies, and a concurrent faculty member in the Department of Art, Art History and Design. She specialises in the history of Christian and Jewish art and architecture, primarily from the third to the ninth century. She is past president of the North American Patristic Society and the Society for the Arts and Religious and Theological Education. Her books include The Cross, History, Art and Controversy and Understanding Early Christian Art. Originally published in 2000, and the second edition was published in 2023. She serves as co editor of the Rutledge Companion to Early Christian Art and the Cambridge Handbook of Late Antique Archaeology, both of which are forthcoming. Professor Robin Jensen, welcome. Thank you. When does the period of early Christian art ends. and what are the main phases of the early, of early Christian art's development?
1: You know, it's an interesting uh, problem of saying what we mean by early, um, since most scholars accept that there really isn't anything we could identify as Christian art until about the beginning of the third century, um, and that's a, an issue unto itself. But um, mainly we sort of think of Christian late antiquity and early Christian art as sort of being contemporaneous. So I would say when I use that language, I sort of mean anything from about the year 200 to about the middle of the 6th century or the beginning of the 7th. But you could push it a little bit later. Um, I generally try to say I don't don't get into the later period because I think of that as more early Byzantine or early medieval, and I'm not myself ready to take on the iconoclastic controversy as such. So I think of that time period before we think of the iconoclastic controversy and the Second Council of Nicaea as early Christian art. Others might choose a different timeline, but that is the one I kind of use. Um, The stages are are really interesting, um, I think, because in the earliest period, and most of what we have, as, uh, as you probably know, Father, is coming from the area of Rome. Um, we don't have a lot of examples from the East, and we do have other examples from the Western part of the Roman Empire, but the concentration of our early Christian material is really from around the environs of Rome. And we think of the catacomb paintings. We think of early uh, carvings on Christian monumental sarcophagi or burial boxes that are marble, but sometimes limestone. Um, and that's a wonderful collection that we have um, both in Rome and also some other places, Naples maybe, um, and Isle uh, um, in Gaul. So the stages, I think, if we think about the very earliest iconography and I'm going to say iconography now um, rather than art, because that's another whole question that we might want to get into. But um, it, it, we start with sort of symbolic, simple things. Um, we have, um, I think those are the simplest forms of birds and praying figures and shepherds and sheep. And um, But very early, what distinguishes Christian art, I think, is makes it more identifiable is the sort of unique biblical scripture scenes. And those um, are some of the earliest images we have, and they dominantly come from the Hebrew Scriptures or the Christian Old Testament. So we have, um, and that allows us to sort of say these are not just g- generic Roman images; these have now become Christian specifically. And we have images of uh, Adam and Eve, Noah, uh, you know, um, Abraham and Isaac, uh, Daniel in the lion's den, uh, Moses. Um, first striking the rock uh this the first images we have Moses receiving the laws a little later um we get so we get um, the three years in the fiery furnace some of Susanna but we get these uh, even Job maybe but that's a little later we have really images that are dominantly from the Hebrew scriptures or the Christian Old Testament which is a really interesting problem in itself But then fairly early, and around the same time, some of the earliest New Testament images are are going to be Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist, uh, Jesus raising Lazarus, uh, Jesus working some miracles of changing water to wine. Uh, Well, even more early, the miracle of the multiplication of loaves and fish. So it would be... In terms of stages, we have, I think, what I call biblical narrative art as the major early stage, and it's very important that I make an emphasis on this—that it's narrative iconography. Um, sometime after the you know, legalization of Christianity and the change of the you know, into the Christian era under the Emperor Constantine and beyond, everything changes again a little bit, and we start to see more uh, New Testament images in the beginning of the fourth and through the fourth century, we will see actually one of the earliest ones is the Adoration of the Magi, which may actually precede the time of Constantine, but just immediately after. And then a lot of images of Jesus entering Jerusalem, uh, the arrests and martyrdom of Peter and Paul. uh, And then uh, Jesus eventually, by the middle of the fourth century, Jesus giving the law to Peter and Paul. Um, which we sometimes call the traditio legis or the dominus dot uh, Christ giving the law, the Lord giving the law. Um, what we don't see, and this is something to discuss, is anything clearly of the crucifixion. We have some references to the Passion story, um, Jesus' trial before Pilate um sometimes we see Simon of Cyrene carrying the cross but we don't have a crucifixion and really before the fifth century and that's something to discuss but um with some with some very rare exceptions and that's that that's surprising to people who think of the crucifixion as the you know predominant christian icon you know icon really for the west especially for western catholics especially um what happens at the end of the fourth century, and this is something I've spent uh, the last book discussing, is a transition out of sort of the symbolic images. The Good Shepherd and these kinds of things begin to gradually disappear and biblical images gradually begin to recede in prominence and what we see is a development, what I call, of portrait images. More and more images of saints and Christ and the Virgin Mary without any narrative context. So Um, By the end of the fourth century and through the fifth, what we'll see in the big decoration of these major basilicas that are now being built are going to be presentations of Christ with saints or the Virgin Mary with saints. Um, You will still see some cycles of biblical narrative images sometimes on the sides of the the walls of churches, but it's a really interesting transition to uh, what we didn't have before Really, was any kind of portrait of the saint, and so that's what I call the emergence of an icon. Um, that's a little controversial. <laughs> Not all of my colleagues in art history would agree with my using that terminology, but it is. It, I think it's fair for me to say that I'm I'm using it very consciously. I'll stop at that for a moment and um, have you follow up.
0: No, well, you've written a book, I believe, on the cross, mm-hmm. uh, history and controversy. Do you cover this issue also in that book? And what were you, What were your conclusions? Why did the depiction of the cross emerge relatively late in early Christian art?
1: It's. A, I don't know that I have a perfect answer. I did write a book. What about? I wrote a lot about this in that book. Um, it's, it, it, sometimes people would say, and I I wouldn't agree with um, that the cross and the crucifixion is not as important to early Christians as it is to later Christians. I don't actually agree with that idea because it's certainly very prevalent in the writings and in the and you know in the prayers of Christians in the early period. So and you can't avoid it in the Scripture and in the Epistles of Paul. So it just seems like that's not the right answer to me. And we have. In the christian apologist uh, people like uh justin martyr or tertullian um minucius felix um you have a lot of references to cross images that are not specifically crosses but they say you see the cross everywhere in the world so you see it in a ship's mast you see it see it in the plow that a, a farmer uses to plow the field um and so you might see it in, you know, in the soldier's uh, statue, the, 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 the carry, the, the, I'm sorry, the trophy a soldier was set up in a field and so forth. So you see it everywhere, but you don't actually see a cross as such. And that's kind of interesting. So I have what we might call kind of like uh, crypto crosses or illusions to the cross. But we don't actually have the cross in art as such until a few maybe simple crosses that could appear in the third century in catacombs but a crucifixion image is really late and i'm not sure i know why it's so late i don't think it's that it was not uh central to christian imagination or to christian faith i think it had maybe to do with the idea that there was no precedent for this image and it may have been incredibly holy, I mean, to depict. So when when we finally start to see it, it's t- not surprising to me that it happens around the same time that we really have the development of pilgrimage to Jerusalem, that Constantine has found the site of the tomb, of the empty tomb of Christ, and established the Holy Sepulchre there, which then the de- the development of veneration of relics of the cross begins to happen by the end of the fourth century, And it's taken off and so i think that there may be something about that that is stimulating the iconography of the crucifixion but i still don't have a really good answer for why it isn't earlier (laughs) i wish i did but i i'm i sort of have to say um, i can tell you when i think it happens and why i think it emerges when it does and i am quite sure that it was always central to christian imagination and teaching and faith but i don't know exactly why it, it isn't present earlier than that.
0: And would the, the initiation of portraits, did that have something to do with the building of churches after the legalisation of Christianity, where there was more focus on liturgical? Because if you're building, if you're painting images of Christ, the Virgin and the Saints, it's, it's almost centred on their scatological presence and the liturgy.
1: Mm. And I think that's that's ab- absolutely right. I think one of the things that may inhibit the idea of portrait images earlier is that we do have this big discussion of why Christ- uh, should Christians be an iconic or an- against pictorial images? Um, and that's a big discussion. And so for some people um, still would argue that, and I still see it in history books, Mainly Protestant history books written by Protestants, I'll tell you, but saying that Christians are reticent about any pictorial art because of the Second Commandment's prohibition of graven images. Um, that I don't, I don't accept that because Christians made images in the third century, and there wasn't anything that actually prohibited Christian narrative images. What I think Christians avoided was, in fact, anything that was like a A pagan cult images of a god and so um, they were probably reticent about any three-dimensional statues and they still in some places are because it could look a little bit like a pagan cult statue and anything that would prompt direct prayer to the image itself and so a narrative image like um, Abraham offering Isaac for sacrifice or Noah in his Ark aren't as likely to prompt prayer because that's more of a didactic or a, a, you know edifying kind of image. Whereas the development of the portrait in the end of the fourth century emerges at, at a time when pagan cultic practices have gone, are going away and are no longer in any way threatening, I think, to Christians. And they start to develop a, an idea that you could actually um, pray to an image image depicts. And this this is clearly happening at the end of the fourth century to me and into the fifth century. So I think it's a change of practices that has a lot to do with liturgy, uh, devotional practices um, at the time. And it may have, may emerge and develop because Christians are no longer so worried about falling into what I would call mistakenly venerating the wrong kind of thing, or mistakenly venerating the wrong image of God. Um, so, yeah.
0: And <laughs> is this the subject you've covered in your last book from Idols, icons?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right.
0: And what led you to become a scholar of early Christian arts?
1: That's a good question. Um, I actually started out as an undergraduate as an art student. So I was an art studio art student, and then I went on to, um, it's a long, I taught art for a little while um, in the U.S., and then I went to seminary, because <laughs> um, I wanted, I, I, it's a long story there, but it began, then I went back to art school, so I've been sort of integrating, I think, the practice of art and theological education and my own theology for a long time, and then in my doctoral studies, I'd gotten really hooked by the and the history of Christianity just fascinated me. I'm a sort of historian, of course, and so I was trying to find ways of integrating both the visual arts that I was had studied so much and practiced with my interest in the history of Christianity. And I it, it was a long time ago now, but I realized that there weren't a lot of people actually in doing this integration and and looking at what we could know about the history of Christianity, not simply from the texts that are left to us, but also from the material evidence that we have, you know, the architecture and the um, images and the iconography. And I think it's a way of really enriching the study of the history of Christianity and really filling it out in a way that if we ignore the material culture, we lose a lot. Uh, We don't have that access to the ways that many the ordinary people would have encountered and experienced their religious faith and practiced it
0: and what has been the focus of your research
1: most of my research has been um, a study of early christian art and it's mostly again in the west um, but i've also very been very interested in architecture and so i have my my first works were actually on the development and design of baptisteries, um, baptismal fonts, and baptismal chambers in the early in early Christianity, and so I just um, I try to I try to sort of shape my research around uh, the ways that we can know more about the life and faith and practice of early Christianity through the environments in which this took place, um, this the settings um, and the decoration of those settings, and so. Um, It really has. I'm trying to make it a whole study. I've I've really been very involved, not as an archaeologist, but as someone who studies archaeology and the works of archaeologists as well. And I've been teach just finished teaching a class on the history of Christian architecture. So I keep pulling all these things together, and I hope that um, I open up new ways of thinking about the the history of our faith.
0: And obviously, historical Scholarship has its own intrinsic value, but how can the study of Christian art help the average Christian enrich their prayer and worship, if indeed it can?
1: (laughs) I think one of the things that I love to do with average Christians is help them to see their own environments in which they worship and, and attend to that ways in which that does shape the ways they think about who Christ is, who the Virgin Mary is, who God is, um, and, and as we know, liturgy is the way we shape most people, in, you know, really shape their faith. I mean, it's a we most average Christians don't go off to study theology and you know any kind of three-year study <laughs> or even necessarily even any formal study. And so, what we what we experience first and for, foremost, I think, in our Christian lives is is liturgy, and that liturgy takes place in spaces that are decorated. So. Um, a scholar at Duke uh, a long time ago, well, not so not so very long, I suppose, Mark Chaves, had said, and I think he's right, that the way that people encounter art, um, most people encounter art in church. Um, it's music, it's artwork, it's the liturgy, it's 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 gesture, it's movement, um, and so these are these are forms in which we know. We we experience our faith. We learn about our faith, and so I like to help people to see how the space that that they in which they worship um, enrich their worship, and I want them to be more conscious of that and to pay attention to it and to think, what is that crucifix telling us? And um, what kind of crucifix am I growing up with? What am I looking at? What is what is on what is in the windows? What is in the walls? Um, what is the shape of my space? How does that change my encounter of the people of God um, and what we're doing in that time? So I think um, it's it's more attentiveness that I would like people to have, because I think we're all impacted by the places we worship, maybe less consciously than we could be. And there's a way in which also, um, Guidance and and training help people to see works of art in ways that they might not have otherwise understood them. So sometimes I like to say that my students are extremely literate about music, uh, much at least popular music at least, but they're they're listening to music all the time. And they don't quite recognize that they're also seeing images all the time. And they're not quite as literate about them. They're not quite as visually educated as they could be. And I'd like to sort of help people to, to know more and to see better what they're looking at.
0: Much of the literature written by early Christians has not survived. And a good deal was heterodox. I'm thinking of some of the apocryphal gospels or the Gnostic writings. Is the same true of early Christian art and some of it's a bit dodgy Doctrinally speaking?
1: Um, I, you know, I, I don't think so, really. It, it's interesting. I, we don't have a lot of Gnostic art, which is possibly because they were Gnostics and they were very, they probably yes, didn't have material, corporeal things. But I think one of the things that I like to help people to see is that art is theological. It does do theology. Um, and maybe sometimes that theology could be dodgy, I suppose. Um, for example, we have early on images of the Holy Trinity um, creating Adam and Eve. Um, and it's interesting to sort of see that we have them depicted as three uh, anthropomorphic figures, men. Um, one of them seated in a throne and two of them standing um, so that could be sort of a dodgy, you know, can we do images of God? You know, we say God is invisible, incorporeal, and yet we, you know, artist has to depict something. So um, that, one could argue with that. But then I think there's a sort of freedom, and, and artists are never trying to be literal. Um, and maybe we mistake that idea of, of um, often I'll jump a little ahead and say often get the question of what, how do we depict Jesus, and why are we depicting Jesus as a Caucasian man? Um, and not as a Palestinian man. And I'm saying artists have a freedom to express something. They're not trying to tell you this is what it really is. They're trying to help you to understand it better. And so the Virgin Mary can be depicted as, you know, in a Dutch dining room wearing a velvet dress. And we know she didn't probably live in a Dutch dining room and didn't have a velvet dress. But we're trying to say something about her beauty, about her, her, who she was um i don't think an artist was mistaken in that um so sometimes i think there's some dodginess um there's a, an example i sometimes use and it's a little complicated but there's a, a church in ravenna that has contrasting images on two sides of the church on one side of the church there's small mosaic images a cycle of images that show jesus um, in his in his earthly life working miracles and teaching and, and healing people and calling his disciples and he is youthful and doesn't have a beard on the other side of the church it's starting with the, the last supper and goes all the way through the garden of gethsemane scene jesus being arrested trials before herod and pilate and on into the Uh, empty tomb and passed into his post-resurrectional appearances, and he has a beard. So um, trying to explain why these two cycles are so distinctly different, um, some people will try to say, oh, there's different workshops, or mm, who knows? And my answer is actually that there's a theology of this that, and it's probably, maybe maybe it's a heterodox theology. So it may be that on the on the side where he's beardless, the artist is saying that Jesus has not yet fully come into his glory. And if we follow the gospel, passion spray. And so suddenly he he's, he's, he's grows this beard and he's maybe tr- the artist or the commissioner or the who's ever in charge of de- determining this cycle is saying this is the moment in which he moves, he changes. Um, and it could be a kind of, if I'm, if I, don't, if I take the liberty of saying an Aryan kind of Christology, it could be a heterodox kind of Christology. It's not the Johannine Christology actually saying he's, you know, he's divine from the very moment of, you know, of his of the existence. But in fact, it happens gradually or it happens suddenly maybe in his life. So I think there could be moments when we can look at art and we can say, you know, I think there's something wrong with this image (laughs) and it probably isn't what we want. It probably isn't showing the right kind of thing if we follow a kind of orthodoxy about Christology or Trinitarian theology. So that can happen. Um, But I I like to also hold out the fact that artists are not always trying to be uh, dogmatic in that same way.
0: Mm And the first book is the forthcoming second edition of your Understanding Early Christian Art. If I've understood correctly, your aim in the book is to show that early Christian artists were reflecting on the substance of the gospel in much the same way as the church fathers were in their writings. Early Christian art and patristic writings are on an equal foot footing, and we need to study both together, mm-hmm. like the latter early Christian art. And its exegetical, symbolic, liturgical, and iconic functions communicates theological ideas and meditates upon them. How would you, what are you is that the correct description of your book and
1: that's a good description, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that.
0: What so is what are the main ideas you were trying to get across?
1: Um so it the the I should I should say that, that that was the first book I wrote. I wrote it 25 years ago now. Um, I'm just out of graduate school. Maybe I was still even finishing graduate school when I started this project. And so it was a very audacious thing at that stage of my life to write. Um, <laughs> and uh, over the years, the press has come back to me and could I do a second edition? And I've always known that I probably should. And when 25 years on, m- many things, I thought about differently than when I wrote that book. I've learned a lot more. Um I've learned a lot from my colleagues. i've there's been a huge r- number of new things written that I've learned from and appreciate, um, and I've been able to incorporate those a little bit into this new book and some more ideas that I have, including some some maybe some more argumentative uh, passages, perhaps. So it's less of a probably less of a primer and more of a kind of overall argument. But I do think that one way in which I may get sometimes into some hot water with my colleagues who are art historians is that I really do think that we need to study the texts and the art together. Um, Which is not to say we should subject the art to be interpreted through the texts, but both of these are witnesses one to the other and that um, to better understand the art you really do need to attend to the writings of the early church that we have and we don't obviously have you know, everything that would have existed and probably only maybe a tenth of what would have existed. But it is a window into how one could interpret these stories and we see them juxtaposed in such a way in early Christian art that I think tracks pretty closely often with what the early church fathers are writing about, especially in the commentaries and the exegetical works, sermons and so forth, catechetical lessons and so forth. So one illuminates the other for me. And I could never work without both.
0: Thank you for listening. To read or listen to the rest of this interview and gain full access to our archive, visit fivebooksforcatholics.com and become a premium subscriber. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and give it a top rating on the platform of your choice. That way more people can discover it. You can also support the podcast and help us produce more interviews like this one by making a one-off donation via the link given in the show notes. As little as one dollar, one pound, or one euro can help and will be greatly appreciated. Thank you once again, and God bless.